Um, welcome to the fall, women's ministry fall coffee. And I'm thrilled all of you all are here. Um, Mary really doesn't need much of an introduction, but as you know, she is um, Paul Paul's wife, a mother of three sons, a grandmother, uh, has a career of her own in landscape design, and above all, y'all, um, she is just the most gifted teacher and speaker. She spoke this morning to a great group at Advent Park at 7, and um, you all are in for a real treat. This is a really powerful talk, and uh, I think it's going to touch everybody. This, if everything works accordingly, is going to be recorded, and it'll be on the website shortly, probably next week, and um, you'll want to go back and listen to it again, because it's a lot of just beautiful information that's going to apply to all of us. And so, um, without any further ado, I welcome Mary Saul. Well, I can't believe I'm sitting I'm here. This is great. It's wonderful to be here. Couldn't, um, it's one of my favorite places on earth. And... Um, just seeing so many of you, I'll probably cry, but uh, <laughs> it's great to be here, and thank you for, um, I guess I'm glad I said yes. <laughs> anyway, um, the topic today is, uh, that I've agreed to speak on is grace and families, and family relationships. Um, I'm going to start with a, and ask you to imagine a scene back in 1978. Um, the setting is actually Greenwich Village in New York City at the Washington Square uh, Children's Playground. I have a one-year-old son, and I'm sitting around the park benches watching, we're all with other mothers watching our children play. I've noticed that some of these children are in these amazing little New York City get-ups, and their mothers also, they're looking very hip, and I just did really well to get the Oshkoshes on and get out the door. Uh, so I'm feeling a little inferior just from appearances because my mother told me that was everything. Uh, so, and then I'm shocked at 10.30, all of a sudden this mother says, oh, 10.30, snack time. And she pulls out her little organic snacks and her organic juice and her dual washcloths. <laughs> and um, I thought, mm, gosh, didn't think of that. Uh, guess you'll have to go hungry. Um, <clears throat> and then the discussion goes to something about the danger of the jungle gym or the, um, was it possible that a homeless person had maybe used a sandbox last night and I'm not going to let my child in there. And they were talking about all these things and I, you know, it never occurred to me. I thought, what's wrong with me? I had never thought of that. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have my antenna out for all the things that can possibly go wrong for this poor little child. So I felt very insecure. Paul and I were really, we were doing the best we could, um, but honestly, we had never had a conversation about child rearing. And we never have. <laughs> That's true. And there were no books to turn to in 1978. In 1978, you had Dr. Spock for rashes and fevers, and you had the magic years just to enlighten you about what was going on with their mental processes, but there were no other books. 
imagine how things have changed. Um, furthermore, the women sitting around the park bench with me were mostly either Jewish or very aggressively secular. I didn't have any Christian friends. We were at a church where um, it was a church building situation. Our son was the only child in the nursery, and the nursery was in the headmaster's office. There was no, you know, there was nobody to turn to. So I was flying solo. And um, it actually made me very insecure as a mother. Uh, and I, I regret that because it did rob me of some joy during those years because I felt quite insecure. Um, the only thing I was worried about and that I continued to worry about, really actively worry about with our children, was that they... Um, would grow up to hate God and the church because their dad was a minister. Paul's own father fit that category perfectly, and that was what I was afraid of, and that's what I worried about, not the jungle gym. Um, (laughs) And I was just afraid that that being the sons of of a clergyman, that they would make just normal rebellion would be worse. So that was what I worried about. Uh, And I saw my cluelessness, on mothering and parenting and what have you as a negative. I really did. I saw it as a negative and as a source of insecurity for me. However, I have to say, I have changed my mind. And I now see that cluelessness, that winging it, as a positive. So what's changed my mind? Well, the main reason is that they've turned out so well. Um, They all love God and each other. They're in touch with us on a daily basis and with each other. Their relationship with each other is as moving as it is their relationship with us. They're all in some form of Christian ministry. They uh, are all married to beautiful Christian women. And they're producing adorable grandchildren. (laughs) So we are rich. We are rich in the things that count. And it's taken me 35 years to give this talk. (laughs) Because I was always afraid that if I talked about family life in any way, it would jinx my children. And they were more important to me than being an authority. And I'm still not an authority. I do this with fear and trembling. But I do it in the spirit of giving. I believe this is what I've been given. I've been given this wonderful family life. Um, Much to my surprise. Much to my delight, but it's sort of my little loaves and fishes that I offer back to you in the spirit of, uh, of humility. Um, one of our sons was asked by a friend of his, a contemporary of his, who's also a, a young clergy father, what did your parents do? Mainly thinking about the faith issue. What did your parents do? And our son answered, well, actually, nothing. <laughs> and that was really pretty close to the mark. Um, I have to admit, we, you know, we didn't have any parent guru that we were swearing by or listening to or reading every word of, and we also didn't have competing parent gurus in our heads trying, you know, do we do this or do we do that. We were just trying to do what we knew best, but unconsciously what we were doing, and I now see in retrospect, because I had to give this talk, that, um, <laughs> that what we were doing, unconsciously, there was something seeping through that had to do with a theology of grace. Um, 
it was nothing that we, um, it came to us as a gift. Back in 1978, same year um, as the park scene, we uh, were at Grace Church in New York. And for the first time, even though Paul was ordained, and I had been leading Bible studies and what have you for years, for the first time in 1978, we both came to understand grace for Christians. The love of God, the grace that's available to Christians, not just to non-Christians. Uh, and that came through Fitzhausen while we were at Grace Church in New York. So it's taken me all this time to talk about this because uh, I didn't want to pose as an expert and I didn't want to jinx my children. But also, I think that any time you talk about family relationships, you're walking into a minefield. Um, we all want to get it right. We all know. As we get older, we find out that our family relationships were more important than we thought. They only grow in importance, I hate to tell you. It gets worse. <laughs> what happened to you when you were 10? <laughs> Multiplies. Um, so it's an emotional minefield, and we all have our own stories. And truth to tell, we all feel pretty strongly about our own stories. So I wade into this territory um, tentatively and hoping that maybe I, might, I just might have something to say that, is, that lightens your load. That's my goal, to lighten your load. Because we all take it very seriously. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. <laughs> but it's not a recipe. I have no recipes for successful family relationships. Quite the contrary. If you come away thinking, I need to do what Mary did, then you've missed the point. And I've, I've missed the point in, in giving it, in what I've said to you. So first, a definition of what grace is. Grace is being loved when you don't deserve or earn it. Paul, my husband, has described it in his book, Grace and Practice, as one-way love. That means nothing is expected or required in response to love. Nothing is required in response. It's a free, one-way love. Tim Keller says, There is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now, if that's not good news for families, I don't know what is. So I'm going to talk, I've got five themes that have kind of emerged as uh, what I think um, have been important in our family life. And I'm not talking just about parenting, I'm talking about all of our relationships. These are, um, although some of the examples will be with children, um, I'm talking about the whole, the whole family dynamic. The first theme is that human nature is fallen, even in Christians. That's what we mean by simul justus et peccator. That means that, that sin persists. The 39 article says, sin persists, yea, even in them that are regenerate. That's us. Um, so human nature is fallen, even in Christians. Now this lesson first came home to me in the child-rearing scene um, with the, the first issue that came up was toy guns. <laughs> Uh, it turns out that that was one of the subjects that these mothers in the park had very strong feelings about. Well, I had, some, I had a little input on this one, actually, because I had worked on the psych ward with troubled children. And I knew um, that in play therapy, to help these children, that often uh, the use of weapons was an important 
part of helping children who had problems with anger or fear. So theologically, though, how I saw this issue was that what Jesus said when he said it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's not what they're exposed to. It's what is inside that defiles. And I saw that the source of my boy's anger was not something outside them that I could protect them from. It was inside them. It was there. That was part of their human nature. So it was our job as parents to help them express that, that anger in an acceptable way and not to suppress it or judge them for it. This translated, believe it or not, in countless, countless ways in, uh, in our family life. We did not see ourselves as parents protecting or preventing our children from the big bad world. We tried to help them learn how to manage the big bad world that existed primarily inside them. Now in our family, that meant exposure to some very strange things for little children, like science fiction movies and even horror movies and lots of rock and roll. Um, And that's really what it meant. Not protecting them from it, but exposing them to it. It was as if we were helping our children to develop antibodies to the world rather than sequestering them and keeping them in a sterile environment. Actually, that was a huge relief to not think it was my job as a parent to filter out all the bad influences. That's a relief. But just to cope with and help them learn how to cope with what uh, is, uh, is there. Um, you could, um, later this meant dealing with bigger things or more disturbing things than toy guns. I was okay with the toy guns part, even when they shot me. <laughs> later it meant dealing with things like skateboarding and rat tails and ponytails on boys and uh, rap music and funny clothes. And that was not easy for the girl in the family, the only girl in the family. Um, Furthermore, this set the stage, though, for how we dealt with bigger, really big stuff that came along, such as alcohol and drugs and girls and pornography. And all those issues did come up. But as long as we understood that it is what is inside the defiles. That was our governing uh, way of handling these issues and helping them to learn how to make those, uh, make distinctions, to figure out what was good in a book or what was not so good in a television program, to help them to learn to make those distinctions themselves. Another note about human nature being fallen is the Bible describes human nature as blind, deaf, lame, and bound. It helped us to understand why instruction and exhortation just didn't seem to work. They weren't enough. You can't make a blind person see. You can't tell a a lame person to run a marathon. So that helped us. On a good day, 
and a good day in our family, that translated into uh, more compassion and less judgment, more reality and less pretending, not only with our children but in how we saw those around us in the world. Um, One of our boys commented to me, I, I got their permission to give this talk, their, their encouragement, actually, to give this talk. And um, I asked them, you know, what, what do you think was going on in our family? How do you see what was going on in our family? One of them said nothing. You know, that was helpful. <laughs> but the, another one said, he said, actually, we looked on the world and the fallen people in it with more reality and more compassion than he saw in many of his friends, and especially Christians. I was amazed that he said that because I think of us as having very strong opinions about just about everything and everybody. But that's what he saw. So something seeps through about the compassion that you have when you understand the fallenness of human nature. And, of course, the good news about the fallenness of human nature is that we are fallen parents. We're we're married to fallen spouses. (laughs) We are fallen spouses. We have fallen siblings. We have fallen children. We have fallen in-laws, daughters-in-law, sons-in-law. There's no such thing as getting it right with fallen people. And honestly, that is a big relief. So I want to take a pause right now for you to reflect just silently to yourself. Think, ask yourself the question, where am I aware of my own fallenness? in one of my family relationships. Someone said at the early one, one. <laughs> Think for just a moment. Where are you particularly aware of your fallenness in a family relationship? The second theme that emerged from, uh, as I look back on our family life, is that the law is insufficient to deal with human nature. I talked about that earlier with exhortation. In fact, in fact, the law carries with it seeds of rebellion. Now, what do I mean by the law? The law is any system that thinks, if I do that, then I will get this result. In the Old Covenant, God said, if you obey me, then I will bless you. The New Covenant, why Jesus came into the world, is to break that cycle. God loves us without expecting anything in return. Any words such as intentional, action consequence, Earning, deserving, any, if this, then that, this for that, any of those words are forms of the law. Anything we do expecting a certain result is a form of the law. And it's insufficient for the problems that we have. And it actually will probably make them worse. That's why Jesus came. Our job as parents and spouses and siblings is to love each other as God loves us, to, as God loves us as his children. 
Grace is free. It's not looking for a result. It's freely given. No strings attached. Yet the law is so tempting, especially for controlling people. It appears to offer control, something that we can do. We're all desperate for something to do. And I have to confess that I have failed in this area probably more than any other. It's so tempting. So much of my parenting was you can have dessert if you eat your dinner. You have to write a thank you note if you've gotten a gift. You um, can't have the car unless you have uh, turned in your paper. You know, all that if-then that I was doing. One thing I will say, just as an aside, is that we, thank God, never never linked performance or moral behavior of any kind with pleasing or not pleasing God. We also didn't negotiate about church. One of our kids said that it was as if we went to church because it was Dad's job. If he had been the coach, we would have gone to the football game. Same principle. It wasn't linked to moral behavior or pleasing God. In our family, it was go to school, learn to read, wear seatbelts, go to church, no discussion. And honestly, it served us well in the long run. Very, we had very little problem with that. Now, we argued a lot about what they would wear. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story on myself um, and how I fell into the law, thinking that it would be enough. One of our boys, while we were living in Europe, one of our boys wanted to go to boarding school in, back in America so he didn't have to change high schools repeatedly. Um, and I was particularly concerned. Remember, the only thing I was worried about was their faith, really, deep down. Um, I was concerned that he would run in what, about what he would run into spiritually and that he would be alone. So I asked for advice from a well-intentioned Christian friend. And she said, this is what you should do in choosing his boarding school. Find out where there is the strongest Christian fellowship and send him there. And that's what we did. He went to this school with the Great Christian Fellowship straight from a wonderful Christian camp that he adored. And uh, he duly went to the first fellowship meeting of the year that fall, taking his roommate with him. What did he find when he got there, this Great Christian Fellowship? He found a lot of rules. A lot of rules about what music he was supposed to listen to and especially what he was not supposed to listen to. He found out there were a lot of rules about how you behaved with young women. Um, I don't know what else he found, but nevertheless, what I do know is that he never went back. His roommate kept going, got converted, and eventually broke up their friendship over which music they could listen to in the dorm. Our son went prodigal. As they say, he was never really bad, but he did not darken the door of the church throughout boarding school or most of college, except when he was home. (laughs) Um, Why? It was because I, his mother, thought if he goes to this school, then his faith will be protected. My intentional action was the very cause of his opposite reaction. Now, this might not have happened to other children, but it did happen with mine, and I think it happened because I needed to learn this lesson, that the law was not sufficient and actually might increase the problems 
And it did. Since the good news is about saving people who need a savior and not about making people good or better, I had to learn that my child, my children, had to in some way go prodigal to understand their need for a savior. But as a parent, I would have been very happy with some elder brothers. <laughs> I didn't want prodigals, prodigal, having a prodigal child or something that looked, that wasn't you know, conforming to the family norm. I was threatened. I was frightened. And I was embarrassed. Another story that illustrates the opposite of intentionality or the law and shows something about how, shows something about how God's graceful loving works. It really does work. That was sort of the subtitle of this talk. Grace really does work. Um, when Paul decided to go to Germany in uh, 1993 to get his um, 92 to, to get his PhD, we thought that the front story is Paul Zell goes to Europe to get PhD, and the back story was family follows along to have European experience, <laughs> right? Well, actually, as we look back on it, the PhD has not made that much difference. But the front story, the back story, became the front story, as is so often the case. Um, the boy, what happened is that the boys learned how to love each other after three years or through three years of camping out alone as a family in Europe. Uh, if we had ever thought, we never once thought, if we go to Europe, our boys will become friends. We never thought that. But that's how God worked. That's what grace is. That's what happened. And it is so much easier when we get out of the way. But that's not so easy. But intentionality is a word that I, I have antennas going up about. One other word about the law. Scripture says the law kills. Kills. But the spirit gives life. One of our boys that just this tell you what my parenting was really like, one of our boys said that his memory of me, his sole memory of me during his teenage years was about writing thank you notes and cleaning up his room. (laughs) I can tell you that was not fun for him or me. Not fun. When we got it right, and Paul was so much better at this than I was, it used to irritate me, but he, he was, he was so much better. We had fun as a family. We played at the things that we all genuinely loved. And in our family, that, you know, whether it was um, reading books or watching movies or going to rock concerts or shopping for clothes, which was fun for me to do with the boys, um, or even in our family talking theology, we did it not with a purpose in mind, ever, but because we loved it. And that's what. That's what the Spirit does as opposed to the law. Um, I'm convinced that the main reason our boys love God today is because they love their dad. And they love their dad because he's fun and funny. (laughs) So let's pause for just a moment to reflect on this second point, the insufficiency and even incendiary possibility of the law in our relationships. Think to yourself, where have you tried or are you trying to control someone in your family with some form of if you would 
then dot, dot, dot. The third theme is something some of you have heard me talk about before. And that is that good listening is grace in action. In 19, if 1978 was an important year for us to learn about the grace of God, then 1994 was a big year for us to learn a crucial way for putting grace into action in our family life, in all of our family relationships. Both Paul and I took a course from Aunt Canon Ann Long, who had been, we had known 20 years earlier as our, uh, a professor at our seminary in England. She taught us both how to listen well, and in the process we saw how um, transforming, simply listening, how healing, simply listening, could be in all of our relationships, but especially with each other and with our boys. Some of you have taken some of that training here uh, or other places through us or through Anne. Good listening means that I value what the other person has to say more than anything I might have to say. Let me repeat. I value what the other person has to say more than anything I might have to offer. That means biding your time. It means do not interrupt, criticize, minimize, spiritualize, tell my story, or give advice. Let me repeat, or give advice. (laughs) It is one-way love in action. Furthermore, in listening and being listened to, Anne discovered that the person talking usually knows what advice she would give herself, amazingly. They don't need us. Another word for this is imputation. It's regarding the other as Christ sees them in action. I'm going to give you one example um, in our family life, which is gospel. This is absolutely true, and it happened here in Birmingham. Um, As I was driving one of our sons to the airport... He was very excited about his current girlfriend. And we were excited because he had a girlfriend, actually. Uh, <laughs> we had a lot of dateless years. Uh, but anyway, his, um, he was very excited. She was about to graduate from college, and he told me that they planned to move to Boston and live together to see if they were really meant to, to be together forever. And mercifully, I was given to keep my mouth shut. Um, Of course, I had a thousand things I could say. A lot of reasons why this was a very bad idea, I thought. But I didn't say anything. I listened. And he told me all about their plans and um, all the reasons, and I listened to him. And then he turned to me, and he said, Well, Mom, what do you think? I gulped. (laughs) And I said, Well, you know, you're really smart and you care about her a lot and I honestly trust you to make the right decision. That's all I said. Later, he told a friend of mine, he said, you know, when my mom said that and didn't give me advice, 
or her opinion, I grew up. At that moment, I grew up. Um, I wish I could say I did it more often. Take a moment now and ask yourself, who in your own family circle is the hardest person for you to listen to? that emerged as I was thinking about this is that the understanding that God speaks to us through whatever is going on in our lives. Another way of saying this is God comes to us disguised as our life. It's especially hard to take it in when that because God often works through what we do not think is good, the opposite of what we think is good. What's bad is often good. That's what the cross is all about. That's a little remote, that's theory, that's why we call it Good Friday. But nevertheless, the same is true, that God um, comes to us through whatever is going on, and I would say especially the reversals. Like any family, we've had our serious challenges and reversals. We've had school problems, police arrests, car wrecks, addiction problems, job disappointments, life-threatening diseases, difficult family, extended family relationships, natural disasters, just to name a few of the bigger ones. Some of you here can talk that. Easily. Daily, something comes at us that we see as bad news. It's taken me a long time to understand that God is actually speaking to me through whatever is coming my way. That he's, that means that God is just as present in the bad as in the good. These reversals may or may not be a result of my own sin, but there's comfort to me in knowing that there is healing, um, that Jesus came for the sick. He came to heal the sick. And conversely, he will not come to me if I think I'm well. What this means in practice is that we can accept or even go toward whatever we see as negative, not avoid it or blame someone or something for it, or even try to overcome it, which as Americans we're particularly strong on. Overcoming. When it comes to our children's faith, we believe that the bad times were actually opportunities to help our boys understand the good news of the gospel. We have seen ourselves more as responders than planners or protectors. We tried to respond to the times our boys got in real trouble, and they have real trouble, uh, as an opportunity to show grace and forgiveness. These were the key parenting times. Even a bad grade or a bad girlfriend or a bad habit 
was a cry for help, a sign of God actually knocking on our door. One example of this, um, one of our boys came home from college looking terrible. He was gray. He was unkempt. His affect was flat. Not like himself. Turns out he was also in trouble, with, serious trouble with some of the, his schoolwork, and he was paralyzed to do anything about it. <clears throat> Paul and I, mercifully, were given to see that this was serious and had even more serious potential. But it was basically a cry for help and an opportunity for us to respond to him in a way that would help him in the long run. We did not judge him or blame him or chastise him or see it as our job to fix him. But we did listen to him and we allied ourselves with him in seeking help. He was depressed and on a downhill slope into deeper depression with academic failure a real possibility. A lot of dollars going up in smoke. Um, my point. We supported him, though, in finding the counseling and the medication he needed. And from there, he also got help with the coursework that he was about, that he was about to fail. I guess you could say that what looked like a bad situation, getting worse, was actually an opportunity for us to demonstrate our love for him in a practical way without demeaning him. In fact, our uh, belief in thinking that God speaks to us through reversals took such a hold on my thinking, it's called theology of the cross, that I began to see God as something of an ogre, um, whose only way of loving us was to bring us pain. Well, that's not true either, as we know as parents. And it came home to me when I was praying for this same child to get an important job. He had a job interview, and I really wanted him to get this job. And I was tugging, you know, in my prayer life was a kind of tuggle with God to, you know, please don't make this, don't, don't think the only way you can work is to deny him this job. And it came home to me, it was actually during the Olympics, and I was cheering for somebody to get the gold medal. And um, I thought, you know what? God may be cheering for him to get the job. And it was right. He was. He got it. And it helped me to turn around and see that God really is, even though the reversals are the painful ways that God shows us his love, that more often than not, his desires were our desires. Suffering is not the only prescription the great physician can give. It's a very important one. But as with earthly parents, God delights in us, and he really is on our side. Let's take just another moment here. I want to ask you, can you think of a situation or relationship that feels like bad news where God may actually be speaking to you right now? The final and fifth theme is this. Our job in our families is to trust the Holy Spirit with our families and to get out of the way so that he can work 
so that he can do his work. Um, There's a quote from Oswald Chambers that had hit home to me and has really continues to hit home to me. This is what Oswald Chambers says in, in My Atmosphere's Highest. Are we playing the amateur providence in other lives? Are we so noisy in our instruction of others that God cannot get anywhere near them? We have to keep our mouths shut and our spirits alert. We disobey God by becoming amateur providences, by protecting others from suffering. Let me repeat that last sentence. We disobey God by becoming amateur providences, by protecting others, those we love, from suffering. I have to ask God on a daily basis, where am I interfering with your work in someone else's life? Who am I trying to prevent from suffering because it distresses me? It makes me uncomfortable. It makes me sad. Can I trust the Holy Spirit to work without my help? This is, of course, where prayer comes in. I pray more now that I'm trying to keep my mouth shut more. Jim Glennon was very helpful right here, again, at the Advent. So many important things happened in those nine years. He, uh, when he told me to leave my problem at the foot of the cross, to turn 180 degrees and walk away, he said, leave it there and don't insult God by picking it up again. One of the practical ways that this has worked out in our family is in trusting God, trusting God to provide surrogates who can do for our family what we cannot do for them ourselves. In fact, we may be the very last person who can help. Let me say that again. We may be the very last person who can help. These surrogates are the Gil Crackies and Cameron Coles and um, Sunday school teachers and school teachers and even therapists and AA counselors. Each of our boys has come to a living faith in Christ, but neither Paul nor I had a direct role in their making a faith commitment. God has put others in their path to lead them to faith. Yes, they had the advantage of parents who loved each other, an intact family, and who loved God. And they had mostly good church experiences. (laughs) But we were happy as parents to, um, and willing to let others play critical roles in their faith journey. And that's really what happened. God provided what they needed when they needed it, and it usually was not us. As um, the, first, the very first time I left my child in the nursery at the church, I was letting him go. This letting go um, was, I and mean, some mothers just can't do it, this letting go is an especially painful thing for us as mothers. It's, an, it's a wrench. It feels counter to what we're brought to do. Our lives, our bodies, are all about nurturing and protecting our children. Or, and, and it extends to everybody around us. That's what we are as women. But if the ultimate goal for our children 
is to become adults who can stand on their own two feet, then at some point, our role as parents must necessarily recede. He must increase, while I must decrease, as John the Baptist said. As our boys became teenagers, I found that the role of their father increased in importance. Only Paul could teach them how to be men. Had we had a daughter, his presence and affection would have been the necessary ingredient to prevent her from seeking the wrong kind of affection from the wrong kind of men. However, I must admit, it was not easy for me to step back, even and, give, even and trust Paul in that way, and to, to let him, his importance rise and mine become more of a backseat role. Today, he's the one they want to talk to most of the time when they call, unless it's about money. <laughs> um, he's the one they want to talk to about something important, and they do talk to him. I told somebody this yesterday. Our boys talk to him almost every day. What a blessing. But it also means that he's the one who, that they want to talk to. So for me, the point I want to make is that Uh, Someone once told me, a wise person recently said, your children will will continue to be children as long as you need to parent them. I've been surprised how hard it's been for me to step back and let go of my children. I came home very dramatically when they got married. You know what the text is? Leave and cleave. Guess who they're leaving? Guess who they're leaving? <laughs> and that's my job. My job is to let them, to bless them, to bless them as they leave. I want to underline this is not easy, but also want to say that I have come to believe how important this is that we fail as mothers if we continue to mother our adult children or even our spouses. I want to leave you with what happened in our family that helped me see how important my stepping back and letting go and trusting God was. One Sunday, sitting in church right over there, in this church, I was in deep distress about one of our sons. I could see that he was lost, not just spiritually, but in life. He was adrift without a rudder or paddle. I was consumed by guilt for all the ways that I knew we had failed him. I was consumed by guilt for the ways Paul had failed him. (laughs) I had prayed and prayed and um, with no apparent results. I had tried all sorts of ways to help him. I was desperate. The Holy Spirit showed up in response to my heart's cry. Amazingly, he showed up in the psalm for the day. It was the 16th Sunday after Pentecost, and we're in the cycle, at least in the church where I go, um, where we read this recently. It was Psalm 80, verses 14 and 15, and they jumped out at me. Turn, O Lord of hosts, look down, and behold, tend this vine that thy right hand has planted. For me, that morning, the scales fell. It was a combination of Oswald Chambers and Jim Glennon and my desperation. This vine that needed tending was not my vine, was not my son, but the Lord's child. And it was the Lord's job to tend this vine. 
He, believe it or not, he had even more love and understanding for this child than I did. He could be trusted. I was the one who needed to let go of my guilt, of my desire to help, and even my assessment of what was actually going on. Miraculously, I did. Um, Probably because I was just so exhausted. I gave my son back to God, even though he was not mine in the first place. And I gave up on my efforts to help him, to prevent him from suffering, or to help him in any way. The first thing that happened after I pulled back was that I was given eyes to see and ears to hear what was actually going on with him. As long as I was seeing the problem as my problem, and a reflection of me and my parenting, I was blind. It was like looking in the mirror and seeing myself. And guess what? We're the last to know what's really going on with ourselves. Others see it. It's obvious to them. It's not obvious to us. That's the same thing that happens when we over-identify with our children. My over-identification with him and his problems was the plank in my own eye that Jesus talks about. Finally, I was able to see the speck in his eye, and it was pretty obvious. He had a substance addiction, and I hadn't been able to see it. He needed professional help. After that, things began to fall into place. Paul got on board, and we were directed to the right people, and he was willing to get help. So what's my point? My point is that my over-identification with his problems kept me from being able to help him. The very thing I wanted to do. I had to let go and trust God to take care of him. I had to stop trying. I had to admit my powerlessness. Step one of any 12-step program. Once that happened, the steps were relatively straightforward. Though things did get worse before they got better, and I had to trust God for that too. Once I got out of the way, his new life could begin. The same principle has come to me in relationship to Paul and other family members. I need to get out of the way and not play self-appointed Holy Spirit or amateur providence in their lives, even if it looks like terrible suffering for them. Let's pause for a moment and ask yourself, is God saying to you, can you let go of, and you fill in the blank. I hope this has been good news to you. Good news to know that God knows that we are blind and deaf and dumb and lame and bound. Good news that we need a Savior and not an exhortation to be better. Good news that listening is such a simple way to express our love. Good news that God is present in the very things we dread or want to deny. Good news that God wants to tend all the little vines 
that we fret over. As we close, can you think of the main idea that has struck you this morning about your own family relationships? I'm going to ask you, if you feel comfortable, to turn to the person next to you and take one minute, no comments, perfect listening, and share that with the person next to you. The one idea that's come home to you this morning. You don't have to if you want to say, I pass. I can't. That's fine. But for those of you, the women this morning at 7 found this helpful. For those of you who feel able, we're going to take two minutes, that's all, to turn and and take turns telling the person next to you, what is the one thing that's come home to you? Not a, you don't have to tell the situation, just what idea has hit you this morning. And they will go forward from there, not now, but later they will pray for you. So if you'll take that time right now just to turn to the person next to you, if you feel free. We can close. If you want to talk more later, you can. Thank you for listening. Um, I'd like to close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you that your word, your news, is always good, even when it doesn't look like it. I pray that you would give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and the hearts that are open to hear your word to us today. For Jesus' sake.
who loves us and shows us what grace is all about. Amen. Here. And I also really want to thank everyone who helped behind the scenes um, make both talks this morning a huge success. And thank you so much for Mary being here. We kind of tricked her a little bit. So this is a, this may be her. I'm here for mocking her. <laughs> she, yeah. So if, you, if anybody has a clue to how to get her back, <laughs> let me know because that would be wonderful. But this was great. And I know everyone um, really has a lot to think about and pray about. And just this has so enriched our, our day, our morning, our weekend. So thank you again for this. And a little thank you from the women of the Advent. Thank you all. Great to be here. Thank you.